It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Tom Miller and his family have worked this Colorado ranch for three generations. There isn't much Tom doesn't know about rearing cattle. But recently, some strange things have been happening to his animals. One day, Tom finds one of his cows has died. On a cattle ranch, that's not unusual. First, I, I thought it just died naturally. And then I got closer to it, and I could see it wasn't natural. The eyes were gone, the tongue was gone, the ears were gone, the sex organs were cut out. It's just kind of weird. He notifies the local sheriff, who comes out to take a look. But there's nothing he can do. The case is shelved, but it remains a disturbing mystery. I guess one of the strangest things is the laser cuts. Why is there no blood? How come body parts aren't strung around? In 50 years of farming, Tom has never seen anything like this. It would be highly unusual for a predator to consume gallons of the animal's blood, but leave the carcass intact. Strangely, Farmers all over the world are reporting similar mutilations. Ex-Deputy Sheriff Chuck Zukowski has investigated hundreds of mutilations. Who's doing it and why is still unknown. But now, Tom's recent case reveals new evidence. What I'm seeing is the animal's picked up from one location, it's taken to a second location, the damage is being done to a second location, mutilation, uh, the unusual incisions, the removal of the blood, and then the animals being brought back. Who or what could pick up an animal weighing over a ton, cut it up, drain its blood, transport it, and then drop it back to earth without being seen? I know some people think you're crazy if you say it's UFOs or something like that or aliens, but I don't know what else it could be. I really don't. Retired Sheriff Lee Gerardo of Los Alamos County, Colorado, is also convinced that UFOs and mutilations are connected. A few years back, one rancher called me and uh, said, uh, you got to get out here, Sheriff. One of my uh, steers mutilated. And then uh, 15, 20 minutes later, a bright orange light came up, about the size of a beach ball. He came up off the ground, then he split in two. But it got me with it the same size after they split. Wow. The one ball just went flying north. He just took off and he was gone in just a few seconds. It, did it make any type of sound? Not even a humming sound. And I still think to this day, and it took a lot to convince me otherwise, it wasn't from this planet. Whatever the cause, the mystery of livestock mutilation remains unexplained. The Unexplained Files on Science. Question everything. Hello, everyone. It's Misdeeds and Intrigue. I'm Larissa and... I'm Carrie and... We have a very, very special guest today. And I'm proud to say that I am related to him. 
It's my brother, Tyrone. And we, uh, by actual popular demand, remember briefly when we touched on cattle mutilations a few weeks ago, we actually got texts and emails about it. So we are going to discuss UFOs and cattle mutilations. And my brother has done a lot of research on this topic. So Tyrone, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, Larissa and Carrie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm uh, Larissa's brother, Tyrone. I've been looking at this for quite a while. And I guess my interest in UFOs started at a young age, around six years old. I have to go back a little further than that. Our father was in the Air Force. He was uh, stationed in uh, Nagoya, Japan, back during the Korean War. And he was uh, head of the crash crew, among many other things that he did. He was one of the guys on the crew back in 47 that he was part of a team that went and picked up debris off a prairie in New Mexico. And uh, it was from a downed uh, flying saucer. So mind you, this is 1968 before anybody really heard about, you know, the Roswell incident. So that piqued my interest. From there, then, you know, by the 70s, we were getting these cattle mutilations in northeastern Colorado and getting these strange lights in the Did sky. Did you see any strange lights? Never saw any strange lights. So between April and October of 1975 alone, there was nearly 200 cases of cattle mutilation that were reported in Colorado alone. So the Denver Post picked up on it and different news outlets because they're like, why are all these cattle being slaughtered? But that was just in Colorado. There was other states as well. Colorado's then Senator Floyd Haskell asked the FBI, hey, can you get involved? So in 1979, the FBI opens an investigation into a series of cases that had reportedly taken place on New Mexico's Indian lands. A lot of the pressure came from another state science-minded U.S. Senator, Harrison Schmidt, who had a PhD in geology from Harvard, and he had walked on the moon, and it got brought up during that. So then in January of 1980, the Bureau says, hey, none of the reported cases that has involved what appear to be mutilations by other than common predators, and just shut everything down. Even though there was a sheriff in Denver, a rural area, Denver, that said, hey, I've never seen anything like this by a coyote or a sharp instrument. It's because it was so cleanly cut. Because there was like, I think a couple thousand, they eventually, over that time period in the 70s, and then I think it happened again, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I was just reading up on this myself, was in the 90s, it started up again. Most persistent stories surrounding the UFO phenomenon is that UFOs have made a practice of following American space missions. Several astronauts have been quoted about the deep space encounters, but there has been no official confirmation of such contact. Tonight, in part four of UFOs, the best evidence, George Knapp looks at NASA policies regarding ETs. He'll also find out if there is a connection between UFOs and the mutilation of thousands of animals. We should warn you that some of the photos you're about to see are graphic. One of the weirdest activities attributed to aliens is the bizarre mutilation of animals. Scattered stories of carved up livestock and strange lights in the sky date back to the 1890s in the U.S., but it wasn't until the early 1970s that a pattern began to emerge. A mutilation explosion rocked Midwestern, then Western states. Then, as now, the main targets were cows, although horses, deer, pigs, goats, and other animals have received similar treatment. Today, nearly 15,000 mutilation reports have been received. Most often, the phantom surgeons 
remove sex organs, udders, rectums, eyes, or ears. The carcasses are usually drained of blood, but blood is rarely found on the ground. There are occasional burn marks on or around the dead beasts, and the cutting is performed with scalpel-like precision. It's hard to visualize or even comprehend why someone would drive up and kill an animal and then take the male parts out. I don't know. It's beyond me to... I never... Uh, it's beyond me to understand it. Former state senator Floyd Lamb has lost two prize bulls to the mystery mutilations. Like many ranchers, he's self-reliant and didn't bother to file police reports. His Lincoln County ranch sits adjacent to the Nevada test site, so he's seen his share of odd things over the years. But he hasn't got a clue about who is carving up cattle. I don't know what I don't I don't understand that. Some kook. Lamb has several neighbors who've also lost cattle. Most of those weren't reported either. In all of Lincoln County, we could find only six official mutilation reports dating back to 1975. But many people we talked to had heard of others. Yeah, and straight up, you know, the last one that I heard was in 2005 by Colorado Springs. My interest in the cattle mutilations is that our family had a, uh, we had a meat processing business, you know, growing up in a meat processing business with you'd spend time all over the business but i spent time on the kill floor it was a federal plant so what a federal inspector would do was uh now this is going to probably get a little gory guys but <laughs> <laughs> go um, ahead when, when you know when you knock down an animal raise them up by the back feet and you're going to take the head off the hide and then you're going to take that head and you're going to put it on a rack and the first thing is that inspector is going to be looking at is going to be looking at the tongue, and they're going to be looking at the lymph nodes in the jaw. Because Why? for like rabies or something like that, you know, if an animal had rabies, you don't want to be selling that meat. Uh, any type of disease would be showing up in the jaw of the animal. I noticed that a lot of these pictures of these cattle, they had the jaw missing. In fact, pretty much any picture that you see of a mutilated animal has the jaw missing. That's the first contact on the ground. You know, when an animal's eating on the ground, they're going to be picking that stuff up. Uh, so that was my curiosity is, you know, why are these animals missing this stuff? The ears, the eyes, the udders, anuses, sex organs, the tongues, like all those routinely removed. And I do know that in the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of fallout. They had the test ban treaty. What was it? 1963? The U.S. and Russia came with the Atmospheric Test Ban Treaty to stop blowing stuff up in the atmosphere. It, we had a lot of radiation that was going across the country, and it was cropping up in milk. Uh, they had a lot of radiation levels in milk. So then that goes to, the, you know, why were the udders missing on these animals? You're, you're looking for contamination. So why would the anus go missing because they were looking for con contamination in the anal glands or oh, yeah you're looking you're going through the sex organs all the way through the animal you're going to look you're going to go from the front of the animal to the back of the animal the poop chute is very sacred in my opinion no one should be wandering <laughs> up the poop chute i don't care if you're an animal <laughs> and they were drained of blood there was no tracks or footprints or anything around them like to indicate scavengers why would they drain them of blood though why you know, i'm not a biologist or anything but I, why did they test test your blood for like if you to check you for cancer and stuff like that i mean you're gonna you're gonna look for the blood i'm not quite sure why they would drain the whole animal of blood other than 
when they dropped the animal, quite frankly, I don't think these are UFOs that were picking up the animal. And some of the theories where they thought it was paranormal, that it was by Satanists. One, they thought that the these unmarked helicopters were involved. So somehow the Nebraska National Guard, they ordered their helicopters to stay above 2,000 feet rather than 1,000 because the ranchers would like shoot at them. Then there was, the, I think, Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. Like there's been a, a big show about that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I haven't watched that, but um, I know it's really popular because I see it all over Discovery Plus. I started to watch it and it disturbed me and I couldn't sleep. So I stopped watching it. I'm really scared of anything with Skinwalker yeah. in it. <laughs> exactly. I'm very scared of anything or anything that they say that can like take different shapes. So wh- what, how do you, what do you think about the mutilations? Do you think they were real, Tyra? You mean from like extraterrestrials or what? I mean, I mean, first, let, let's look at the storyline here. I mean, when we were kids, uh, when it first came out, it was, uh, they were devil worshipers. So you have to look at, okay, devil worshipers. At that time, during the 70s, in the early 70s, mid 70s, I don't know if you guys noticed, but there was a lot of media on uh, devil worshiping. Satanic panic. <laughs> This is Jane Bradshaw's ranch. She's filed two reports of mutilated cows in eight years. One of the mutilations occurred just yards away from her house. No one heard or saw anything, and as is normal, there were no tracks found. Still, Bradshaw and her children surmised that devil worshippers with poison dart guns were responsible. You don't just walk up to a big healthy animal like this and tell it to lay down. You know, you've got to do something to it. And it wasn't shot. It wasn't stabbed i mean it wasn't killed in any way so it'd have to have been some kind of a a dart or sleeping thing to make it fall roving bands of shadowy satan worshipers are frequently mentioned as possible culprits in the mutilations some researchers insist there just aren't enough devil worshipers out there especially in rural areas to commit such widespread mayhem former lincoln county sheriff larry wilkinson personally investigated three mutilation cases he dismisses the notion of knife-wielding Beelzebubs because of the sophistication involved. The cuts uh, that were made up the uh, legs and the inside of the legs and up the belly uh, looked like you could have taken a zipper and zipped the cow right back together again. They were, they were one-eighth uh, serrated cuts were made on the cow. Uh, we cut down into the animal and found out that the, the ball joint was gone, completely gone, uh, off just that one shoulder and just a perfectly flat cut inside. Uh, no bone chips, uh, nothing that you would get from a meat saw where you're leaving uh, pieces of bone particle or anything like that. It, it was cut, I don't know how. Some government researchers have blamed predators for some mutilations, but the likelihood of a mountain lion making an incision like a cookie cutter seems remote, and coyotes have never fared well against living, breathing cows. The Bradshaw family insists that neither predators nor any other animal was responsible because not even maggots would come near the carcasses. Several weeks later, I think the coyotes finally did touch the animal's head, you know, try eating on its head, but they wouldn't touch the body, which is, which is odd because they're, they're scavengers and they'll eat anything. Documentary filmmaker Linda Howe refers to the mutilations as an alien harvest. Howe has followed up on hundreds of cases and says whatever cut open these cattle didn't use a knife or pinking shears. Pathologists have told Howe that the cuts went between rather than through the animal's microscopic cells. 
A laser capable of doing such work would approximate the size of an office desk, hard to cart out into an open pasture. Howe's investigations have found an unusually high correlation between mutilations and UFO sightings. In some cases, the strange lights in the sky are soon followed by mystery helicopters, leading some to speculate that the UFO mutilators are being monitored themselves by someone with a lot of helicopters. The lack of blood or tracks, the sophistication of the cuts, occasional tripod-like indentations found near the bodies, to how and others, this all adds up to UFOs. I've never counted UFOs out, and I still don't to this day. I've seen some weird things over this mountain at night. That's towards the test the site. Then look, <laughs> some what weird... do they do? Well, I just remember some kind of a bright light going up and coming down. In fact, they even saw reports where they said, well, there's the animal, and we saw where they laid cardboard around the animal, said that you couldn't see it, their footprints. <laughs> God, that would be so tedious. Like, oh, hey, Mr. Cow, don't step there. Uh, you would need a whole crew just to get rid of footprints. And yeah. So my interest is like, wow, that can't be, you know, you can't like go through all that trouble of trying to mutilate an animal for tanning purposes. So then years later, 2000, after the local sheriff who was using all the media back then. Probably about 20 years ago, you interviewed the sheriff that was uh, doing all these investigations at the time before he passed away. Is that right? I wanted to really know, you know, what was this all about? He said, you know, he said at the time, I kind of kept the public figure in the media, could be extraterrestrials, you know, UFO related. But he said, all uh, practical purposes, he pretty much thought it was a operation that was classified. Because he said, the guy in the uh, general advocate, his name was uh, Bill Jackson at the time. And I don't know if you guys know, but the big light that they saw in the sky was called Big Mama. You know? And Big Mama would show up and then they would have two little lights spread off from Big Mama. Um, they would go to diff different areas, they'd watch them and then they'd start chasing these lights. And the sheriff told me, you know, one night we're chasing the lights. We see a light over this hill and we're going up over the hill and all of a sudden our cars died. And he said, that was it. You know, we couldn't go any further. But at a certain point in time, they did get uh, infrared goggles or they had access to mm -hmm. them. And he said, one night, this is down by the river, we could see like a helicopter just hovering there, not very far above the ground in the trees. It was silent. You know, the next morning, there is a mutilated animal out. So how would they turn the cars off? Was that an electromagnetic impulse or what was that? Like the government? Yeah, I, I would think so. Do the government and uh, the military have that type of technology at that time? Um, I'd have to do some research on that. Carrie, would you know that? I wouldn't know. Like, I think today we would be able to do certain things because of drones and unmanned surveillance stuff that we do. But back then, I wouldn't know. I'd have to dig a little deeper. But I do find it interesting that some of this stuff was right around the nuclear weapons factory in Rocky Flats. And I do think when I dug into some of that stuff relating to that, in 1957, there was a, an article in the Atlantic that said a September 11th catastrophe you've probably never heard about, which involved Rocky Flats. There was also a disappearance of Keith Reinard 
and the death of Tom Young in the Rocky Mountains that were journalists. There was also the death of Karen Silkwood in Oklahoma, which had to do with plutonium whistleblower. Now in nuclear weapons plants around the country is more shocking still. Tons of radioactive waste threaten to contaminate not just workers in their plants, but the surrounding environment as well. Today, the Department of Energy released a plan to clean up plutonium left over from nuclear weapons productions at 13 sites. The most egregious examples of poisonous buildings are at Rocky Flats, Colorado. The situation there is so bad that the Department of Energy has decided there's nothing left to do but tell the truth, say publicly that what happened at Rocky Flats was a terrible mistake. Officials there allowed nightline cameras inside the plant and agreed to let us see and hear just how bad it is. Dave Marish has a special three-part report. Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant is where America made the triggers for its hydrogen bombs. Small atomic bombs, these were, their key ingredient, plutonium. Today, 41 years and 50,000 nuclear triggers later, the Department of Energy has confessed Rocky Flats is awash in the leftovers. 14.2 tons of plutonium, one of the world's most toxic substances. We know, for example, that it's in the vents, and it's in the ductwork. We know it's in the glove boxes, in the lays. We know it's in the walls. We know it's in the floors and the ceiling. We just can't tell you exactly how much is in any given location in a lot of places. An internal Rocky Flats memo says as much as 1,320 pounds of plutonium may be hidden in ducts, pipes, vents, and glove boxes at the plant. I have no doubt, and I know I'm going to sound very conspiracy theory, that certain things maybe were, I don't know if it would involve necessarily death, but I don't think that they tell us everything <laughs> or even technology we definitely don't know about. There's technology, I have no doubt, that we don't at broadcast. McCarthyism, duck and cover. Civil defense measures were intended to make people feel like they could survive a nuclear attack. Rocky Flats produced more than 70,000 plutonium pits or triggers for nuclear weapons. A piece of every bomb that's in our nuclear arsenal has something to do with Rocky Flats. A lot of people feared that annihilation beckoned. Even before the Second World War, Colorado boosters had been aggressively pushing for the creation of military installations. In a lot of ways, the West was gaining a lot of financial assistance from the government to start building up military installations. Colorado definitely wanted in on all this. We're talking millions of dollars. In addition to a number of military bases, the United States government subsidized the creation of the Rocky Mountain Arsenal, which was really opened in 1942 to create chemical weapons as a deterrent against Nazi Germany, but which found a new life during the Cold War. The Atomic Energy Commission plant has spent $45 million constructing the plant. It would employ thousands of workers. It would bring millions of dollars into the Colorado economy. And so the early news reports said, look, we don't know what's going on here, but it's probably good news for Colorado. During the Cold War, nuclear weapons plants were allowed to operate in complete secrecy because of the Atomic Energy Act. They were under no obligation to tell people what was going on in terms of what was being produced and also what was going on with respect to radioactive and toxic contaminants on-site and off-site. It was sort of an Alice in Wonderland experience, surrounded by all this equipment and some things you understood and some things you didn't. 
you can get a nuclear engineering degree in school, but they'll never cover the stuff that these guys were experts in. So they more or less were hiring people off the streets. A lot of our people tell us that they were just farmers. And they went in there with their high school education and they learned on the job how to process plutonium. And these people got very smart while they were out there. The half-life of plutonium-239 is 24,000 years and change, and only degrades after 250,000 years. That's the primary plutonium at Rocky Flats. It's a man-made isotope. It's a highly radioactive metal that's carcinogenic. It's teratogenic. It causes aberrations in the chromosomes. It was very pyrophoric, very pyrophoric. An extremely volatile material. Now, people didn't understand clearly the link between cancer and plutonium, but studies in the 1960s, the early 1970s, and by, certainly by the 1980s, made a stronger and stronger connection. We would actually take some of the plutonium and hand finish it. Why do you think the sheriff, so he actually saw the helicopter, right? Yeah, they saw it. They observed it, yeah. And why does he think they were taking these cattle to test them for plutonium or test for any leaks? He contacted uh, one of the branches of the armed services and I think it was Warren Air Force Base at one time. And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll check it out. And then they got back to him like the next day and they said, well, that's, you know, we can't talk about that. <laughs> and he was in the military himself. He said, you know, that was a sure sign that, you know, this is classified. With uh, the breaches at Rocky Flats, you know, they had one, what was it? I think it was 57. And then there was another one at 69. Those were public fires at Rocky Flats. And when they, when they had those fires, the prevailing winds went over Denver and then down the South Platte River Valley. So, but if there's breaches that you don't know about, you're still going to be following that trail to see how far this, this breach is going down the river valley. This anonymous stretch of asphalt behind me is known at the Rocky Flats plant as the 903 pad. But to Rocky Flats' many critics, this is the launching pad. From here, contaminated groundwater leaked down the ridge towards the plain on the northern and western suburbs of Denver. As an individual worker, I protested, I protested that that was not right. Those drums were not going to last out on that, on that pad. Well, it wasn't a pad then, it was out on the bare ground. The barrels, uh, in some cases, rusted and started leaking, and the, uh, the liquids that was in them, the cleaning fluids and stuff, uh, went into the ground, uh, carrying the plutonium with them. And so began one of the best-known migrations of toxic wastes away from Rocky Flats. It can be traced, says Dr. Gail Biggs, on a map of drainage patterns in the Rocky Flats area. Walnut Creek uh, drains down and uh, dumps into the Great Western Reservoir, and then uh, Women's Creek... Uh, comes down and uh, feeds the Stanley Lake Reservoir. Samples from the bottoms of both reservoirs showed deposits of plutonium. The plutonium traveled through water and through the air. The winds are very strong that come through this corridor and you can look right through the gap there on the plant where the two mountains come across. We see the Indian peaks behind us with the snow. Comes right down that through that canyon is one of the primary areas where the wind just really shoots down. Rocky Flats officials admit some plutonium dust was blown past the plant perimeter after a huge fire at Rocky Flats in 1957, an event an official of the Atomic Energy Commission told the Denver Post at the time caused, quote, 
no spread of radioactive contamination of any consequence. Plutonium caught fire in a dry box in room 180 in building 771 in the middle of the night. Chill, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. I will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. me again and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at miss intrigue pod follow us on pinterest and flipboard where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty chronicles of interesting events in history and of course true crime lastly check out our youtube channel because everyone has one right that features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com. But we don't have a complaints department, just to give you a little heads up. The podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guest co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, Misdeeds, or Intrigue Podcast, or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only, and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue Podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube, or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.